Hey sister, welcome back to the Your Sorority Journey podcast. As you may have noticed when you clicked to listen to today's episode, Your Sorority Journey is switching things up a bit. We have welcomed our very first male guest onto the podcast and he is so deserving of being here. Will Frankenberger is the chief safety officer at Delta Zeta, and as you will hear him talk about on the episode, has spent most of his career working with and understanding challenges faced by women. I value his perspective so greatly, especially in such a transitional season of the sorority experience, moving from the virtual or social distance experience that we've had for the past 18, 20 months into an in-person experience again. His lens into the risks that sorority women participate in and how to prevent them will help leaders and members alike make better decisions and consider how to manage the social anxiety that every single one of the members in your chapter, on your campus, in your organization are likely facing. We also dive into a really important conversation about accountability. How are you as a leader or just a member holding yourself and your sisters accountable? I believe accountability is a really true form of sisterhood, a really important element of friendship. And I hope that our conversation today will prompt you to share this episode with another sister or a leader in your chapter to shape the way that they view accountability. Here is my conversation with Will. Hey sister, Cassie Little here to welcome you to Your Sorority Journey, a podcast for sisters to find guidance and confidence in any season of their membership. Our rock star guests and I have intentional conversations, discuss unpopular topics, and provide relevant encouragement to be an extension of your sisterhood. So thanks for inviting us on your journey. Are you ready to dive in? Hey, Will. Welcome to the Your Sorority Journey podcast. Hi, Cassie. It's good to see your friend. Uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to chat with me today. As you and I just talked about, you are our first male guest, which is going to be kind of like a fun uh, change of pace for the Your Story Journey audience. So super excited to gain your perspective and expertise, um, being an expert in the sorority world. Um so yeah, I'm just like really excited to have a, a different kind of conversation today. Thanks. I really appreciate that. And I um, will fully admit that I know that I'm a man and a woman-centered and women's owned <laughs> place. So um, I'm sure that I will say things today that um, your wonderful listeners will often say like, that doesn't seem right. Like, just help me be a better man that gets the privilege of working in women's spaces. Yeah. I am um, honored and thrilled to be here. My entire career has been about trying to understand women and mm. um, really be the outsider that's been privileged to be in those spaces. And I consider this one um, that same kind of sacred space. So thank you for having me here. It's really my honor. That's so cool. I, I didn't know that about you in your, your professional career. Um, I obviously know now that you find yourself working for a women's sorority. Um, do you want to like walk us through your journey, like starting maybe with your Greek affiliation and how that's led you to the work that you do now? Yeah, totally. Um, so I went to uh, Millican University, which is a very small private college in Illinois, and it was a game changing experience for me. I came from a little massive high school in the suburbs of Chicago. Oh, um, funny. Yeah, so going to a small private college was exactly what I needed. Um, there I joined Delta Sigma Phi fraternity. Um, the 
the fraternity at the time in the chapter that I joined, it was a wild group of dudes in such a good way. I mean, oh boy, <laughs> we had the soccer team and the football team and the entire musical theater and like music education department. It was such a cross section. Um, and I was so drawn to them because they were all of the resident advisors and the orientation leaders. Oh, and, cool. Um, TAs, they were just a really active group of men that I had not been really around. Um, I was a young gay dude. I, I was uncomfortable with men and like toxic masculinity. So a fraternity was like the antithesis, like of mm. anything that I thought I would join. Um, we were deferred recruiters at Millican. I think they still are. And so it gave me a lot of time to survey the men's groups to see where did the toxic masculinity exist, but where didn't it? And I found Delta Sig and um, it was great. And so I graduated with a degree in musical theater. Um, I worked on Broadway for a couple of years and had a great experience doing that, which was wild. That and is I, such a fun fact. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Yeah. And I um, discovered that there was such an inequity about how women in that space were treated than men. Um, and so that's when I really, and in college, I definitely was in my undergraduate experience, I struggled with the way that some of my fraternity brothers would talk about sorority women. I struggled with the way that sorority women would talk about their own sisters, um, like with me as their gay friend, that, um, mm. you know, I would hear it all. And I, I was just always puzzled by this idea of like, isn't your sisterhood supposed to be this thing that like, almost like marriage and sickness and in health, you should be able to talk about, but you're not gonna tell her that she's a jerk you're just going to tell me that she's a jerk and never like rectify it. Mm. Um, and then I would struggle with the way men would talk about it. And so anyways, I became really observant in this. I saw that manifest in theater. I unfortunately made some really poor personal choices and um, needed to step away and go through some recovery treatment for drug addiction. And so I did that and I went and turned that experience around into a master's in public health and really looking at drug and alcohol counseling work. And so I started doing that. Um, while I was doing that, I ended up working for a fraternity. My fraternity headquarters had a great experience with that, um, but wanted to do more hands-on education work. And so um, at the time there was a sorority that was hiring for a job. Um, I had applied, I was going down that route. I called a former uh, colleague of mine at a different sorority that I had interned with. And I would, cause I just know how the women's are. And I was like, I just want to make sure that this is okay before I like, lead this team. Um, and my now current boss was like, are you looking for a job? And I said, I, yeah, I am. And she said, what do you want to do? And I said, I just want to help students make safe decisions. She mm. was like, I work at Delta Zeta. And so um, six and a half years ago, that's how my journey started there. And so um, I've been at Delta Zeta, really privileged to be there in that space, doing a lot of our risk reduction um, and health and wellness work. And so um, we do a lot of things from general alcohol education and hazing prevention work, but really focusing a lot of our work now on um, anxiety and health and wellness, yeah. care for one another. Um, sometimes it's beyond just the policies, but just like the civility and good humanship of it all. Yeah. Uh, and so I do that work. I'm privileged to speak on a lot of college campuses to Panhellenic women now. Um, and I'm getting my PhD currently at Kansas State. And I, I look primarily at um, feedback in women's organizations, how it's given both from the top down, the bottom up and laterally among student members and among leaders. And so um, to say that women, women's spaces have been my work so far in my 
that like the tenantship of my career, the big part of it, and in my research is an understatement. So that's wow. a little bit of how I do this work today. Your feminist AF shirt is like being proudly worn today. I, uh, I really appreciate you sharing that part of your story. Well, I always find it so interesting how how we end up in the careers that we are, right? Whether, I mean, um, our previous podcast guest works for uh, a nonprofit that um, one of our organizations support. And I think even whatever route that you find yourself going professionally is like driven by a previous season of your journey. That's why I call it your, your sorority journey, because it's always like equipping you for where you're going next. And I, uh, I appreciate your vulnerability in sharing why you found your way into public health and risk reduction. I love that you call it risk reduction. We call it risk management so often, right? And it's like, what if we were preventing the risk or reducing the risk rather than just managing it as if it's a given? So obviously social anxiety or uh, anxiety in general, mental health has been um, a heightened conversation topic, or we have just been more aware of it in the college community over the past several years and specifically over the past 18, maybe 20-ish months now over the pandemic. Where have you been seeing that um, impacting the sorority space just in your work? Yeah, that's a great question, Cassie. Thank you for that. Um, so I think one thing that's really important to remember when we talk about mental health, mental health has been around for forever, right? Right. Um, but like, so I'm 33. I can't tell you how many times in college somebody would say like, I'm dealing with anxiety. That was a feeling, but nobody really identified it. And that was 10 years ago. You know what I mean? And yeah, so yeah. Now the fact that we have so much work around mental wellness and around, and I think that's a big delineation is mental health is one thing, but a lot of us, um, even those of us with ongoing mental health disorders or challenges, we're seeking mental wellness. Right. Um, that's such a good focus for, for chapters to be thinking about. And I think anxiety is, and social anxiety in particular is really prevalent. When, when the pandemic hit, a lot of us were frustrated, but I think a lot of that frustration was veiled under fear of our social network, which college is really such like, it's one of the greatest social experiments of our lives. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it left. So now, as opposed to being in a bar or being in a chapter facility or being in a college classroom, I'm at my parents' house again. And this sense of independency that I have is now stripped from me. Mm -hmm. And so that's really hard. I think about the inequity of students who were off campus in apartment complexes who got to stay in the college experience, right? Without it being the formal process. But then for the students who maybe didn't, who the residence hall closed or the sorority house closed, now I'm going home. So now I have this anxiety that I'm missing out on this social part that Becky, who lives off campus, gets to have. But because I don't live off campus, now I feel slighted and my anxiety is high because I'm missing out on things. Yeah. So we saw that manifest in such a bad way, I think. And nobody was really talking about that. It was this like, I'm sorry for you that the pandemic happened. Okay, well, that doesn't help. Like that was, there was nothing empathetic about yeah, that. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so then we went through last year and last year was this awkward, like, are we hybrid? Are we not? How do we do this? And I think our Every campus is different, literally. 
Absolutely. No, no precedent. <laughs> and there's like group me's of chapter presidents from across the country. And I love these things, but I'm like, that is such a bad example right now because you've got yeah. no commonality outside of like, like in Delta Zeta, we have one and I'm often, and I love that they have that space, but I'm often like, that's a great support group, but please don't take that as this is what you should do because there are a thousand factors. Why that You're all in different states, different. like Correct. everybody has different rules. Oh right. gosh. Exactly. So I think that was really hard. And our chapters were just trying to figure out engagement. And engagement was just to keep members in the chapters because you're still spending money on stuff. Right, right. And that's anxiety written. The fact that you're sitting going, I'm paying money and I don't know what I'm getting socially out of this outside of a Zoom meeting and, and chapters try, God love them. But I think that created financial anxiety um, mm. and social anxiety. So now we get to this year and I think everybody was like, normal, we're getting back to normal because this little Delta variant was not quite a thing and that was happening, right? Even when you and I talked, like when we first yeah. met like six weeks ago, yeah. <laughs> right. And so I think now where I'm seeing social anxiety manifest is really this idea of, right and wrong and what is my civic responsibility and I know that sounds like a big thing so let me explain that I need to be at social functions I need to be in recruitment I need to be even in chapter meeting to be with my sisters to be with that social thing I need I'm also scared that COVID is real I'm pissed I have to wear a mask I don't like that I have to be vaccinated so these ideas of the I don't like things are competing with the what I personally need things. Mm. And it's causing so much gray and so much decision-making with intentionality that before it was a party. The biggest factor was, am I going to be safe there or not? Now that safety is, am I going to spread something? Am I going to bring something? Am I going to get something? Is that yeah. going to impact me? Like, that's such a different level of anxiety. And I find that chapters are not thinking about that conversation. We're coming at everything from a place of burden, which I get the burden, but who's going to open the door to the conversation of going to parties right now, we all want to do, but it's overwhelming to think about going or planning it. Because what happens when AOPI has the party and AOPI now leads to a super spreader event on campus. Was mm -hmm. that party worth it? Well, that wasn't a thing we were thinking about before. And now we are. Yeah. And so we wrestle with this, do I, don't I? And I find that chapters are not really creating the space for that civic engagement and that discourse Yeah. to ask, how do we do this safely? And that I think in itself is creating such an anxiety between leaders and general members mm -hmm. of what to do. And that's really hard to overcome. Oof, yeah. Wow, thank you for that. Well, I think there's so much packed into that, right? Because truthfully, when you and I like first connected in July, I was anticipating, and I was even starting to feel like in my own social life in Denver, outside of a collegiate space, I was starting to feel like social anxiety around like spending time with more people than I had been in the past, right? Like I had been accustomed to like a lot of personal space and a lot of like alone time. And I wanted that to change. Like you were talking about, we have needs to like be 
in community with others, that's like an inherent need that we have. Right. But there are things that like need to happen for us to be like safely in community with other people. Right. Including masks, vaccinations, um, capacity in like spaces. And that's a lot for like a 19 to 22 year old chapter president to think through and plan for, in addition to her, maybe not even being comfortable around that many people again. Right. And now there's this also conflict of, I need to like recharge. I need self-care, but also like, I don't want to miss out on this experience that I wanted so bad last year to be in chapter with my sisters, to be going to all the philanthropy events, to be going to the fraternity party, to be going whatever that looks like. (coughs) And so in addition to the safety, I feel like there's also this conflicting, what do I need to even do for myself? Like as a general member to be okay. And then also kind of like you were talking about, like looking laterally, okay, what are other chapters doing on my campus? Because I want AOPI or whatever chapter that I'm a part of to still be competitive, to still be providing that like social experience. I think it's really conflicting. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I do think that that's the other part that I think so many of us have forgotten is we, we really did adjust to that new normal. And I hate that term, but we really did adjust to this. new normal. And so like, I find now, even when I go out, I, I would go out with friends for a dinner and drinks and like a drag show or something, right? Like in my own world. And that would be four to six hours of time on a Friday. Right. I find social interaction after just two hours now, myself, I am drained. I'm drained. And it's because I got so used to my independence, my new norm of operating where now I feel like I come at it with a hundred as opposed to my normal, like (laughs) I got to slowly work my way through this and then I can get through. Right. Um, Pacing yourself. Yeah. Like the example I often give is I can go out on a Friday night and that's one event. I can go out for a bridal party and at a bridal party, I'm at a 10 right off the bat. Right. Yeah. It's like a thing. Well, every time I go out now, it feels like I'm I'm at a bachelorette party every time. It's like 10 right away because my brain doesn't know how to do it. I haven't recalibrated it. I think, what if this is the last time I'm going to do this before another mandate happens? Mm. And, and I, I find myself struggling with that. And I think our students are in the same boat. I don't think it's that our students are inherently choosing to be riskier, right? Like there was a lot of messaging around like, this is going to be D-Day this fall, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't love that because one, I think it allows the behavior to happen that way. I think it makes people that abstain harder to abstain. And yeah. I think, I think um, it promotes this message that it's okay because you've missed out. And I don't subscribe to that, but I do think there is this looming fear of, what if or when is this going to get taken away again? So mm. I don't want to miss it. So I want to go ham now. And I think that's the part we're, we're forgetting to talk about. And that's the part that I think is causing health and safety issues that is leading into those anxiety prone situations. Because going out or not going out is one, but going out and then getting COVID or finding out a bunch of friends have COVID, even with the vaccine, because Delta is real. I personally can tell you Delta is real. Yeah. Um, I, that's another set of anxiety. And I don't know how many of our chapters are just starting the conversation with, how is everybody feeling? How do we feel about doing this? You know, we typically do a homecoming pairing and we do events in homecoming. 
what's our level of comfort with that? And how do we allow those women who are not comfortable or immune compromised or have a concern at home to say, I honestly don't want to do this because I'm really genuinely concerned without feeling judged or wrong versus our other members who so badly want to just come hell or high water, do it. Yeah. Who are going to see no bad and are just like social. I need it. I want it, which is also good. There's, there's no, there's no gray to facilitate that. That's hard. Well, and I think too, I don't, I don't know if you have fallen into this, but I imagine many of our sorority women are in this boat of just like blocking out some of these narratives because it's too much to hold all of it together. Right. Like I've missed this. I need to do this. I'm afraid of this. I, I need to focus on my academics because I have, right. There's so many different like priorities that I don't even, I don't even know how I like process them all in my own personal life. And I don't have nearly as much of a social life as these, as our collegiate women do. Right. right? right, right. And so I, I'd be curious to know, we're talking a lot about like, obviously like COVID is like a big concern, um, mental health. How do you see some of these like playing or what kind of challenges do you see being our like biggest risks or concerns going into the fall? Yeah. Um, I think my biggest, my, the first risk that I, I would put out there, and I don't think it's intentional, I think it's exhaustion, is this idea of like no mitigation effort of safety ever, right? Like mm. we're over masking, we're, we can't ask about vaccines because we've been told we can't ask about personal information. And so since I can't do that and I'm pissed off with wearing a vaccine, and if I do anything that's mitigation, our members are going to quit. So what I'm worried first and foremost is um, leadership is going to put their heads in the sand and just hope, right? Hope. Um, and I think that that's going to be really hard. And I think that while the benefit of your membership now is, oh, thank you for not putting anything in or putting any roadblocks into our experience, even parents who are like, thank you for just letting her be. Okay, that's great. Those parents are also gonna be pissed when now there's a housewife quarantine or when the entire university gets shut down. So there's no win in that because you get a temporary win, but then without those efforts, we have a spike in positive cases or we have a spike in our own chapter and now we're on an isolation or a quarantine, all of us, right? Oh. You're equally as bad. So. I think that that's the first thing is there's going to be a head in the sand because we don't want to upset the apple cart and we're exhausted. I hate wearing a mask, but, but I know that that's like the thing to do. The second challenge I think that's out there is we're going to try to get compromise and barter and we're not going to be able to, especially in some of our mega chapters where there's no way you're going to make every human happy, right? There's no way every human is going to be happy. And I think the challenge, like the caveat of that challenge is, I'm hearing so many chapters say things like we're wearing a mask mandate, we're putting in a mask mandate. And I applaud those chapters that do those prevention efforts, but it creates anxiety to me because I go, well, for how long? For the whole year now? It could be temporary. We could just say, we're gonna take this a month at a time. And I think we're failing to say those parts to make people understand or even giving the understanding as to why. It's one thing to just send off an email that says, or a group me that's like, hey ladies, for this event, you have to wear a mask. I'm vaccinated. Why do I have to wear a mask? That's literally why I got the vaccine. Right, so I need more information. And I think our chapter leadership sometimes is not equipping the membership with all of that. So I see that really as the second challenge. The third challenge I think um, 
that I think we're going to fall prey to is no matter what the answer is, um, and I mean this in the most affectionate way, I think our members are unfortunately going to start to, a term that I often use is hostage, hostagize um, their sorority experience. Well, if you do this, then I'm going to quit. Mm. Okay, so a chapter president has 20 women that are saying, if you put this mask mandate in or if you cancel formal, I'm quitting. Well, what's that president going to do? Of course, they're going to panic and they're probably going to do something to meet that demand. But the 10 women over here who are going, if you don't put a mask mandate and I'm also going to quit because now you're unsafe, what is that going to be? And I really struggle with this idea of using your membership as a bartering tool for what you are seeking, which to me is the like the complete antithesis of what a sisterhood or a community of women would be. Right. Right? Like it it seems like such a um, ultimatum kind of way. And I think about relationships, like what relationship is built on a positive ever? If you do this, then this, and I will do that. Like it's so, and then I'm often challenged and people are like, but the sorority experience isn't fake. Really? Because if it's not, then why in the world would you act that way? Because to me, yeah. that is such like a, fake petty that's like a low-hanging fruit versus actually having a conversation and realizing you might not love it for one month but it's not for the year and that one month of frustration might lead to you being able to do things in the year yeah no thought and so I think those are really the three biggest challenges is not doing anything failing to give all of the information that we need when decisions are made and this idea that it's acceptable to use your membership to quit or to not quit as a bartering tool for what your leadership should do. And in that case, the sorority experience wasn't built for you in the first place then. You are no right. better than the people that were told you can't have an experience if that's how quickly you'll walk away from it. So yeah. in that case, I'm like, girl, bye. I don't <sighs> care about total. I don't care about total. I don't right. care about quota. I would rather have a chapter of 30 women that are committed to the cause and the work that have the same spirit of what our founders set out to do than somebody who thinks that it's acceptable to use your membership as a bartering tool for their social game. Girl, go, go. Right. And like all of these women are between the ages of like 18 to 22, 23, 24. Like that's so much pressure to be putting on your peers, right? Like as maybe a senior, maybe you're like on your way out and you're like, you put this mask mandate in, I'm gone. You're putting this on a chapter president who's already been leading through like arguably like one of the hardest right. terms in leadership ever. Like how, how that's not sisterhood, right? Like either you are with her or you're making the conscious decision that this isn't working for you and you're going to go, but don't make, put that pressure on her that like the decision that she is making in the best interest of not just you, whoever you are, but like the chapter holistically is her responsibility. Like what? Um, I really appreciate you bringing those things up because I would have said like, even, like two months ago, like those weren't, wouldn't have been the things that I would have viewed as like, maybe even you wouldn't have viewed as like the biggest risks going into the fall. Um, but I think that's really why are the things that we put in place need to be temporary and they need to be flexible. And we need to be extending so much grace is because things are changing more rapidly than even our national organizations can keep up with to like support, right? Like it is, it's constantly evolving. And so if, if the best practices and like the, 
yeah, best practices for health and safety are safety are evolving that quickly. Then so do we, right? That's just how the story experience needs to be right now. Um, so a term that you introduced me to EIA, I think is like a, might be a really good thing for us to touch base on as we're like thinking through like members who might be listening, who are like, man, like I didn't even think about that challenge or that risk, um, or a leader who's like, I'm trying to like put good things in place for my members. Um, can you unpack that for me? And maybe let's talk about like what resetting expectations and like providing that why for our members might look like through that lens. Yeah, yeah for sure. Thank you for that. So, um, EIA is a, is a, I would say more of an expectation framework um, that it comes out that's really simple. And I will tell you, a great colleague of mine, Lauren Phillips at Tri Sigma, has shifted it to EEE, um, which I think also kind of aligns with our sisters at the sailboat brand, right? Um, but I will tell you, whether it's EIA or EEE, um, it's really a great tool for chapters have conversation and make sure that we're on the same page about what we expect how we're going to potentially intervene when those expectations are met and what accountability is gonna look like. Hence EIA, expectations, intervention, accountability. And again, I think the, the other model is um, expectations, I think it's education and then enforcement. Um, mm -hmm. Lauren, I'm sorry if you listen, um, but uh, uh, <laughs> so let's talk about it. So, the first E is expectations. And that's what are those expectations? And that's things like federal law. That's things like state law, university policy, sorority national policies. But then also I think where chapters fail is those unwritten rules, right? So yeah. what does our chapter expect? So for example, does a member walk home alone? There's no policy written anywhere in anybody's rules that says chapters must walk home in a buddy system. There might right. be a recommendation, right? But there's no policy. But if that's an expectation of your chapter, that's an, uh, an informal expectation that's great. Why is that not talked about? And so it's all of the expectations we, we want our members to follow. So I often tell chapters before they have their first social function, walk through your expectations. My least favorite words is nobody told me that was a rule or I didn't know that was a policy. Bullshit. If when you actually make the time to go through it, say yeah. them, walk through what they are. I will tell you another one I think in sorority is this like unintended, but sort of written out dress code. What is acceptable and what is not acceptable? It's not written anywhere, um, but people feel like if somebody shows up in something that is, and they're not a super sex positive chapter, which I don't have a judgment about that, um, but somebody shows up in something that's maybe more provocative, they're like, you can't come in. Well, how did she know that? you're already setting her up for failure. And now there's no like loyalty to the group because she feels kind of like, well, that was a, like, is it me or is it this? Or is it me and this? And that wasn't yeah. loyalty, right. So, so I think setting clear expectations is step one. After you set the expectations, what happens when those expectations are gonna be violated in that moment? And that's that intervention piece. That is that, how are we gonna intervene um, when that's not there? So for example, if there's an expectation that we're not gonna pregame and homegirl shows up to the bus and you can tell like she is going through it. She clearly thought pounding those 10 shots right before she left in the pregame was gonna do it and she is not it. Okay, 
How do we recognize in that moment, <clears throat> that's not the time for lecturing her because quite honestly, uh, you are like the Charlie Brown teacher to her or like the Hamburglar. So having uh-huh. a moral high ground conversation isn't gonna work. But how do we intervene to get her home safely to make sure that she's cared for, but she's also not coming to our event where there's gonna be more risk that she brings to it. Yeah. Um, you know, what does it look like to intervene when there's mean girl behavior in a chapter? If it's via group me, um, what does intervention look like? And I think that's important that the members recognize not only what the expectation is, but here's how we're going to step in to address this in the immediate moment that it's happening. And then the last part is accountability. And I think accountability is the hardest part. Um, I think in particular, it's the hardest part for Generation Z right now to get their arms around um, versus some older generations. And it, it ties into conflict. There's nobody that seeks conflict. Um, people can be comfortable with conflict, but nobody yeah. actively is like, I want to find the environments where they're riddled with conflict. Um, there's very few people that are built in those worlds that are yeah. actually effective. Let me put it that way. So if people <laughs> love drama, it doesn't mean that they're effective at ma- mitigating it. But that accountability piece, whether it's your judicial board, your standards board, hell, even just a a really direct um, conversation between two adults, right, can be an accountability piece of that to say, look, this was the expectation. This is why we had to intervene. You violated these things, and that's not acceptable to us. Um, Now now we have to step in to figure out what we're going to do to avoid that in the future, whether Mm -hmm. that's sanctions, whether that's avoiding having the event, whether that's just really genuinely telling somebody like a friend, you can use this with friends, how that interaction made you feel yeah, um, and feeling heard. But that's the EIA framework. And I will tell you, setting clear expectations, guiding what intervention is going to look like and holding your ground to accountability. I think if chapters approach it in that model, it's going to create the safest type of environments for everyone to be on the same page. Um, And that's where I would love to see leaders, advisors, even members um, feel more a part of the process as opposed to just being told, here's the rules, follow them or get the hell out. Yeah. Here's a framework that we can use now to create the healthiest, safest chapter culture and nobody will feel surprised or taken aback by. Well, and I think about, as you just described that, like the holding your ground piece and accountability, I think reflects so well into the example you gave earlier about like this hostageizing that you were talking about, right? Like if we aren't holding our members accountable to like be a part of something bigger than themselves, like looking at like the collective good as a whole, if we're just like allowing them to like their opinions, their needs as a senior to not wear a mask or whatever that looks like, or to go to the fraternity party anyways, if we aren't following through with that accountability, either through the standards process or even just like an intentional conversation with a chapter president, sister to sister, right? We are allowing members to like not grow to be like better women for society, right? We like talk about us as like social organizations. And I always come back to like social organizations, meaning like, how are we better equipping men and women for society? Not just like better equipping men and women for like Friday nights out and about, right? Like, how are we like actually going to be like change and better participants in our society at large after graduation? And if we aren't like actually intervening like in that mean girl behavior or in sister Sally showing up way too intoxicated to get on the bus. Like we aren't doing them 
the service that we promised them when they joined our organization. And I think sometimes we forget that, especially when maybe your mental health as a leader or um, you're noticing mental health as another individual is struggling with, like you just want to like be there for her and like support her and just like let her get through some of it. Like there is a balance, I think, between like empathy and sisterhood that also includes accountability, right? And I don't think sometimes we talk about that, that sisterhood is accountability. Sometimes right. we look at them as very different. Yeah. And I, I think that that's, um, that's biological, right? So like women, and this is a gendered statement as a man I'm about to make. So I will put that full caveat out there. But what research tells us is women have been biologically designed from tone of voice to general reaction to be nurturers by nature. That is the thing. Women tend to, and if there's work of, you know, Carol Gilligan and uh, Belinky et al. And, and that research team that talks about like women's ways of knowing, women are programmed to be connected, knowers. And that connection is sometimes the reason that we fail then to have really difficult conversations, right? I had a colleague the other day of mine that said, like, friendships are so prioritized in sorority, but nowhere else in the corporate world is friendship prioritized. That doesn't work. And so unfortunately, what happens is we use friendship as a means to avoid feedback or accountability Ooh, and yeah and that struggles when we get these young brilliant women in the work world who look at a maybe superior or a lateral peer who they think is also their friend who then gives them that feedback and they're like why are what did I do wrong why are you coming and that's how the world works is feedback and and that difficult conversation but we often don't veil it that way. We in sorority feedback or accountability is punishment. It's yep. a failure. It's, I have to shame you. And I often, so I'm so challenged by that because I'm like, where are those two things linked? Accountability can be, walk us through what happened. Cause maybe shit was bad for you this week. And maybe you just lost your mind for a minute. And if yeah. that happened, I'm so sorry that you had a bad week. Yeah. I'm so sorry that you maybe lost some of your judgment center. Yeah, there's some things that happen that we'll unpack. That's not like you. Are you okay now? Like that is accountability. That is having a conversation. Accountability doesn't have to be, we kicked out Sally because she lost her mind at the party. Because if that was the case, we'd be kicking out our members all the time. Like, yeah. But I think sometimes we forget that prioritizing friendship doesn't mean we don't have difficult conversations. And I often veil it with our students as think about your, your best friend or your partner. I love my partner dearly. It doesn't mean when he's a bonehead, I don't have a difficult conversation with him. Or if I'm a bonehead, he with me. And yeah. that's how our partnership is so strong is there is accountability and we still yeah. prioritize our friendship, but he doesn't let me get away with whatever I want to get away with. Right. It's like family. Yeah. And so we sometimes forget that though in sorority. And I think it's because of this prioritization of friendship and we forget that, but another part of friendship is stepping in when something is wrong or when they say something incorrect or yeah. fully recognizing 
your best friend can be your best friend, but it doesn't mean they don't have faults and it doesn't yeah. mean they don't have flaws. And I think that's a part that I would love to see as a development, especially for young women in yeah. particular, because I think that's what's leading to some mind blowing, I'm in society, not sorority anymore. And yeah. I'm so confused at this difference in this. Yeah. Well, and I was told when I was chapter president by my fraternity's for life advisor, this will be the hardest position you ever hold. If you go on to be a CEO of some company someday, like being chapter president at 19 of a organization of 200 18 to 24 year olds is going to be the hardest thing you do. Right. Because of that fact, right. Because you are, some of these women are your roommates. Some of these women are your best friends, right. They are sitting in class in group projects with like, there's just so much overlap in a way that, um, you won't have professionally, right. Like while friendship, I hope that all of our women cultivate friendships in the workplace. It won't be, over the work that needs to be done. Right. And I think that, um, that balance is amazing professional development for our women, right? Like learning that at this time, but it doesn't make it easier, uh, to work through that accountability, right. At, at a fear, right. That a sister is going to be like, well, I can't believe the way my sister talked to me as chapter president. Right. Or I don't want to be friends with her anymore because of this decision that she made. And I think really tying that into the health and safety of our members and these like COVID protocols that our leaders are trying to enforce and um, put into place really for their members' best interest. What advice do you have for our students, our collegiate women to get what they need for their membership while protecting themselves and holding their sisters accountable? Yeah. Um, I think the first, the biggest thing is be really attuned to yourself in this process. Um, <laughs> you said it, and I will say it again, it's really hard to be a leader right now. It's hard to be a member. And so recognize um, this is going to take a toll on your mental health and it's going to, it's going to lead to maybe some sleepless nights or nights where you're really wrestling with um, maybe imposter syndrome or a failure, a, a fear of failure. Mm. Um, you're not failing. This is really hard right now. And so be really attuned to you and your needs. Seek those things if you need them. Tell people what you need to be okay. Um, it's okay to not be okay. Um, everything doesn't have to be the classic, like, it's fine. Everything's fine. It's fine. Fine is not a feeling. Fine is not an emotion. Um, so the first thing I would say to get through this is be really attuned to you first and foremost. I think the second thing that you really have to understand is coming from a place of empathy um, and really understanding people are frustrated. And I think it's often about realizing where the, where the blame is going. And I often call this like pausing. And I um, had a professor once who described it as um, put myself in this person's shoes real quick. So um, for example, um, I was traveling the other day and I was delayed and I, the flight got canceled. And I was looking at these four gate agents um, trying to rebook people and people are yelling and screaming. And I'm also mad because now my plans are pissed and, and, and gone. And I remember I walked up and I just had this pause for a second. And I looked at this person and my first question was, were you supposed to be working tonight? And the person said, I was supposed to be off three hours ago to pick up my kids from school who now are probably sitting at school somewhere trying to figure out how to get home and I'm stuck here. And my immediate mind shift was, 
This person didn't cancel my flight. This person is not the problem. This person should not get the brunt of my frustration. And I think we have to really do a, a good job of first taking a step back and um, hearing both where the frustration is coming from, but those of us that may be frustrated, thinking about the other person's perspective, I would say I think is gonna be a really a big preservation moment for all of us. And I think the third thing I would definitely recommend um, is just listen and listen without judgment. Don't try to then put your perspective or your yep. argument out there. I think sometimes we listen in conversations to turn the other person's perspective. Um, sometimes it's not needed, right? Um, I often think about like, is this a conversation that you just want me to listen in? Or is this a conversation that you're seeking feedback or you're seeking a counter argument to? And we've all been yeah. in those cases where sometimes I just want you to fester with me because I just need to fester for a minute. Yeah. I don't want you to then say your next sentence with, well, you know what I think you should do is, well, I didn't ask you for your opinion right now and I might not be ready for it. And so yeah. I think really listening without the intent to sway the other person. Um, sometimes I think leaders in particular get hung up in this, like, I will totally meet with you, but I'm going to counter every of one of your frustrations with the argument of where it came from, as opposed to just sitting and listening to the frustration. It's okay yeah. if the answer is there is no resolution. Um, listening is really important. So I think that those are probably the three biggest things that we can do right now um, yeah. for our own preservation, but also to better just understand the people around us. And I think if we could all do that, um, we'd be coming from a much better place of understanding and appreciation, um, kindness and care than being pissed and you're allowed to be pissed but taking it out in ways that are not going to make your situation better or give you what you're hoping for. I love that. And I think too, our leaders are so focused on retention right now, right? They, they want to keep their members. And I think sometimes when we, we look at, when we look at retention or we look at like retention, like staying out of trouble, right? Cause we like, we want to continue to operate, but we want to like have members to operate with. Right. And I think sometimes in an effort to stay out of trouble, we just like say what needs to be done instead of like giving the why and providing that like depth behind the decision that's been made. Like we were talking about earlier, I think Gen Z specifically like needs the needs like the thought process and the, a little bit more, like if I'm wearing a mask and I'm vaccinated, can I have a little bit more information, please? Like I'm trying to like understand why these things are in place. And I think that's part of it, but the retention piece, like, isn't going to be accomplished without the why and without members feeling like they're heard. And I think there's a lot of different ways to do that. If that's allowing yourself, like after taking time that you need as a leader to like be the best version of yourself for you, like creating space for members to feel heard and just hearing yeah. them without the agenda of, well, this is what our chapter is doing. And this is what I can do for you. You aren't negotiating. You're letting people talk. You're not trying to fix it. You're trying to help them feel heard and then making the best decision for the chapter at large, not allowing yeah. members to like hold you hostage for their yeah. membership. Right. And I think sometimes that's hard as a leader to manage the two, like how do we continue to operate and provide the best membership experience and incentivize members that there's like still a purpose in being part of this organization. Um, 
even as times continue to be unprecedented and um, confusing. So, Will, I can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise um, in research with us today. I think this is a really helpful perspective for us to have going into the fall as um, we still are trying to navigate what to expect. Yeah, it's my privilege to be here, truly. I appreciate the work you're doing, Cassie. Um, and I, I think um, just continuing to be reminded that the sorority experience, while sometimes tumultuous and while not perfect, um, is really powerful. And I think more people like you who are bringing it forward to focus it is what we need. So thank you for having me be here. It's really been my humbled honor to be here with you today. Ah, oh, thank you so much. As we transition back into this in-person sorority experience once again, I want you to consider how the decisions you're making are impacting every single member in your chapter. As a leader, you can't please everyone. And as a member, you can't expect leaders to cater to your specific requests, your specific needs, but rather the best interests, the most safe option for the chapter at large. I want to challenge you to think about accountability through this new lens. How can you be more receptive and open to feedback and honest with where you were coming from? I am so thankful for Will's perspective as a man in the sorority space to shine some light on ways that we can be truly more sisterly to one another, more conscious of where other people are coming from um, after this really disconnected season of sorority and make the best decisions to better inform the next steps of your sorority journey. Thanks for tuning in to the Your Sorority Journey podcast this week. If this episode left you with any guidance or confidence to navigate your sorority membership, we would love to hear from you. Share a screenshot of this episode on your Instagram story and tag her sorority journey so we can know what resonated with you. Also, be sure to leave a review wherever you listen so more sister friends can find this guidance just like you. Here for you always, sister. 